Hello, uh, we are here today with uh, Dr. Holly Shakia uh, from uh, the University of California, San Diego, and uh, we're talking about the article Adolescent Gender Norms and Adult Health Outcomes in the USA, a prospective core study. Uh, welcome, Dr. Shakia. I'm Marco D'Ambrogi, the deputy editor of the journal. And so we're going straight into uh, the article. And the first thing I wanted to ask you, uh, why, uh, what is the background or your interest in exploring health behavior and how it affects differently males, men and women, or males and females more generally, in terms of health outcomes? Well, so we do know and we have known that health behaviors do differ between men and women. Um, you know, there's a reasonable amount of literature on this. Uh, men are more likely to take risks to engage in substance use. They are more likely to get, engage in and be victims of interpersonal violence. Um, women are more likely to experience depressive symptoms, uh, migraines, eating disorders, anxiety disorders. But the question is why? So uh, this article, um, as some may know, it's, it's sort of a supplement to a series that was being published in The Lancet on gender norms. And one of those papers, Papers 2, really went through um, differences in health outcomes between men and women across the world. And we definitely saw patterns that sort of fit this description. The question is why? What is it that's different between men and women that allow these different patterns to emerge? how much of it is biological and how much of it is normative or societal. And that was really the impetus for this paper. Um, we had contributed a case study to paper two, and it was a smaller version of what this paper is. And so we definitely wanted to expand it. Uh, the version in that, in paper two was cross-sectional and this we were able to use longitudinal data and look across time. Absolutely. Uh, your paper focuses on gender expression. So could you just uh, define it for our uh, audience and uh, uh, explain why you were interested in exploring how this variable gender expression was influencing health outcomes in the long term in your paper? Yeah, that's a, a very good question because gender expression is actually a term that we came up with after thinking about it for quite a bit. Um, we use that term because the measure that we're using to describe gender is really a measure of how typical the behavior of any individual is in a gender sense. So ultimately what we hoped or wanted to do was to quantify gender norms. But gender norms are very difficult to quantify for a few reasons. One is that surveys generally don't include questions on gender norms. Some studies use attitudinal measures to ask people what they think optimal behavior for men or women is. But these are just individual attitudes. Um, so a masculinity scale might ask men what they think is appropriate for men in general, and they may ask specific questions like seeking care from health providers or expressing emotions or risk taking. But the shortcomings of these scales is that they're simply a record of attitudes reported at one point in time. So our measure of gender expression is based on actual behaviors, and that's why we've termed it gender expression rather than gender, gender norms. So it's actually in the physical world, how is a person expressing gender in a way that fits in with how other people of their gender are behaving? Norms imply a person's perceptions regarding others' reactions to their behaviors, and most surveys, as I mentioned, don't measure that. 
Um, so we've used this word expression because it reflects the fact that our measure is actually behavioral. Very interesting. And in, in your article, of course, you focus on gender expression when, uh, let's say, the participants in the surveys that you use were adolescents and how this influenced uh, the health outcomes even in uh, when they became adults. Uh, so, uh, first of all, can you tell a bit more about the databases, the data sources that you use for your study? Sure. The National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent to Adult Health is an amazing national resource. So this is data that's been collected on individuals around the country starting when they were adolescents. And this was around 1995, I think, when the first wave was collected. The study is nationally representative, meaning that the researchers implemented a very complex sampling design to ensure that the data reflects as much as it's possible uh, the reality of the United States as a whole. There were 80 high schools chosen, and they were paired with 80 feeder middle schools. So they had kids from about seventh grade up to 12th grade across 80 communities in the country. So a very large sample of students were initially surveyed in the school, and then a subset were given a very extensive survey at home. And the subset was still a large number of students. It was about 20,000. Um, the parents were also interviewed. And questions in this survey include an incredible array of behaviors and health outcomes, including substance use, daily activity, participation in delinquent activities, school achievement, sexual behavior, and overall health. These individuals have been followed into adulthood and interviewed periodically since the initial survey. So the data we used was from this first round of interviews and then from the fourth round when they were had reached adulthood, this was about in 2008. So the individuals at that point were between 24 to 32, I think. And uh, as you mentioned, it's based on self-report, uh, these outcomes, and, uh, and they are representative. But how did you use this data to measure gender expression, which might be a quite uh, diff abstract concept for some of our audience? Yes, that's a, it's an excellent, excellent question because it is a, a little bit of an unusual measure. First of all, about um, self-report, yes. Self-report is something that we always have to deal with in terms of survey research. There's always an issue of self-report. And sometimes this is there's just no way to get around this. If you're asking people attitudes, it's very hard to find a different way, a gold standard way of measuring a person's attitudes without actually asking them about it. Um, gender expression was a measure that was adopted by previous studies, and it attempted to capture a person's proclivity to gender with typical behaviors of that gender. So this was a clever use of the many measures available in the data. So briefly what they did was they went through this data set, and there's, I don't know how many thousands of questions in that data set, many, many, many questions. And they identified the questions that captured behaviors that were most typical of boys or of girls. And they narrowed them down to those that were the most typical. And I think it was about 24 questions for each wave um, that they used for this uh, measure. The final measure then is the probability that any individual is their own reported biological sex or gender based on how they answered this battery of 24 to 25 questions. Um, so the questions themselves were just part of the larger survey. We pulled them out, these 23 or 24 questions in each wave, calculated these probabilities for each individual based on how all the other students 
in this data set had answered the questions. So a boy with a very high score, we'll say like 0 0.90 as an example, that boy has reported engaging in a high number of boy-typical behaviors based on this data set. And the same thing for a girl. So a girl who engages in a high number of girl-typical behaviors will have a high score as well. The important thing to realize, though, is that the average score is not one. So it's not like the perfect boy or almost all boys are at a one. Most people on this scale are around 0.65 or 0.7, because not every individual is going to engage in every single one of these gender-typical behaviors um, as, me <coughs> <Excuse me. coughs> as, measured, as measured in this data set. Um, we use this as a somewhat of a proxy for gender norms, um, because first of all, we don't have measures of that in the data, as I mentioned. But this, this particular measure is, is very interesting because it's really reflective of how a person is walking in life compared to the others around them, and how closely does that conform to what other boys or girls may be doing in that same population. Absolutely, and uh, just to summarize the main finding of your study, uh, when you analyze how gender expression impacts on health outcomes in uh, males and females at different ages? So there were a lot of findings in the study. In fact, there were so many findings that it was hard to actually give them due, their due um, attention in the article because we didn't have space. What we found is that, first of all, men who have high masculine gender expression as adolescents are more likely to engage in substance use behaviors as an adult. They're more likely to drink sodas and eat fast food as, as an adult, but they're also more likely to report their own health as adults to be good. And this is compared to men with low gender expression. Um, also somewhat less likely to report high cholesterol and high blood pressure. These patterns for men are consistent with their gender expression as adults. So to make it clear, when we ran these models, we had their gender expression as adolescents as a predictor in the model of these different outcomes, but we also included their gender expression as adults in the same model. So basically we were controlling for gender expression as adults when we were looking at gender expression as adolescents. But this also gave us the opportunity to see, independent of how they were as adolescents, what does adult gender expression um, what is that associated with in terms of adult health outcomes as well? So for men, what we saw was that it was pretty consistent. So gender expression as an adolescent was predicting these outcomes as an adult, and their gender expression as an adult was consistently predicting the same outcomes, pretty much. What we found for women was different. Um, it was a more complicated story. So what we found was that strong feminine gender orientation as an adolescent was actually associated with some substance use as adults, namely prescription drug use, recreational drug use, and use of marijuana. Um, girls who reported strong gender orientation, well, whose behaviors reflected strong gender orientation as adolescents were also more likely to report poor overall health, physical limitations, reported sexual violence, and high cholesterol as adults. Now, the interesting thing is that when we looked at adult gender expression, some of these associations switched. So substance use switched directions completely. So a woman with higher gender expression was less likely to engage in almost every single substance use behavior that was measured that included prescription drug use, smoking, heavy drinking, recreational drug use, 
marijuana use, all of those negatively associated with strong gender orientation as a female adult. There was also a decreased likelihood to report sexual violence, but when we did see an increase in likelihood of reporting depression and lower levels of physical activity for women as their adult um, gender expression predicting their adult outcomes. Of course, when we talk about gender expression, some of the audience might think that there is a linkage with sexual orientation. And in your study, you also analyzed this this aspect. Can you just tell us briefly what you found when you consider sexual orientation in the picture? Yeah, when we considered sexual orientation, what we found was that people with high gender expression scores, so people whose behaviors were highly masculine or highly feminine, were more likely to be heterosexual. However, when we actually included sexual orientation in our models, our findings didn't change. So basically, how feminine or masculine you were and its association with adult outcomes did not, were not, that was not accounted for by the person's sexual orientation. That was an independent effect. Absolutely. And uh, uh, the last question I want to make, of course, uh, this study has sort of practical implication, or at least, of course, as a society, we sort of impose uh, a certain model of behavior on a, a, our young population. And so, of course, what this study is telling us is that should we change that? Should we make specific intervention to sort of modify the negative outcomes and this association with gender expression? Can, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, there's a lot to say on this topic. Gender, of course, in general, has become a hot topic lately um, because of Me Too and you know, other sorts of um, revelations around sexual harassment and gender in the workplace and whatnot. Um, Trying to change gender is an interesting challenge because, as we know, there are some aspects of a person's gender expression that are protective. Um, Gender exists in societies in different ways. So we see that in a lot of developing countries, there are many interventions, say, for instance, for contraceptive use or whatnot, that actually work with gender norms to try to empower women to be able to make their own decisions and whatnot. This sort of uh, intervention is much less likely in a country like the United States or in developed countries. But when we're looking at adolescence and we're thinking about the dynamics of adolescence, it's certainly possible for schools to become more aware of how gender is impacting the interactions and relations between kids, their decision-making, their health behaviors, and really understanding that that can work into the future is a strong motivation, I think, for schools um, and communities to be more proactive about this sort of thing. Um, The other thing, though, is that gender is, is organically changing in our conception in the United States, at least, definitely, younger people are far less um, attached to their particular gender. There's more uh, young people who are coming out as gender neutral or um, binary gender or whatnot. So this is also organically happening. What we don't, I think, completely understand are what are some of the pathways here. So the, the results that we have show very strong associations. What we don't entirely understand are what are the pathways. So why is highly feminine behavior causing these certain outcomes? Why is highly masculine behavior causing these certain outcomes? We can have, um, we can speculate about this. Now, one of the interesting things about the women's results 
in terms of the substance use was that this measure of gender expression, there were a few questions in there that were specific to depressive symptoms. So feelings or experiences of negativity towards self or whatnot. And there was one version of the gender expression variable that we created that did not have those questions in there. And that was the version that we were using to actually predict depression. But when I actually used that version, the version of gender expression without the depressive symptoms in it, what I found was that the substance use behaviors as an adult were negatively predicted. So once we took out depressive symptoms, suddenly gender expression as an adolescent was not positively predicting substance use as a result, it was negative. And this is telling us that there's something, particularly for adolescents, about femininity and depressive symptoms that is negatively predicting health far into the future. And this, we understand for adolescent girls that this is when they start internalizing, this is when um, negative self-esteem comes into play, and there's a lot going on with adolescent girls in that sense. And I think understanding these kinds of dynamics and these pathways can go a long way into understanding what it is about these gender um, expressions that could be protective and what is it about these gender expressions that could be detrimental. Thank you very much. Well, we, we clearly this article shows that adolescent is a key age and with implication in the long term and that gender is also performative and our society is becoming, we can say, more fluid in this sense and we need to understand more and study more. Uh, I thank uh, Dr. Shakia for being with us and uh, that's